If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. Listening to Unsung Podcast um, this week to my immediate across. I'm joined by a man who is so infuriated by the lines at buses and at trains that if he could see Kyle to get through quicker and cheaper, he would definitely do it. As of course, Mr. Chris Kusak. Oh, thanks. That's uh, that's in the, the deep end for 2019. <laughs> Start as you need to go on. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling a wee bit less relaxed this week than I was last week. Well. And probably with good reason. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tell you, nothing. Oh, nothing makes you want to drink less than having to edit <laughs> four hours of podcasting that you did as you got progressively more steaming. Because I'm like, we've all we all know. I think that we talk pish when we go to the pub. Yeah, especially later on. What we don't all then have to do is sit and meticulously go through that pish <laughs> and imagine how that translates into a show. Like the advantage was that because I was editing. I was able to sort of spare my blushes a bit. Yeah. Um, the cutting room floor sounded like an argument with Shane McGowan. <laughs> <laughs> it was a disaster. I like that that end bit where I was like, bah, bah, bah. yeah, that, it was I mean, like mostly like that. Like, there, was, there was a wee bit of that. It was quite. A, it was a. Um, from what I remember of the recording, it was a, It turned out to be a very conspicuously short episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a director's cut flying about somewhere that <laughs> hopefully we hear lawyers can suppress. It's ever long as well. So it was like a man. Just imagine listening for a second. Actually, probably the worst stuff that I cut out was David getting progressively more annoyed as the episode went on. <laughs> like, I was hoping some of that would make it in. But I really want to go, guys. Like, and there was, I think, for the last fifteen minutes, he was sitting with his coat, and his hat on. Yeah, he was kneeling on the floor, and stuff like, over, like ready to close his laptop. <laughs> it was just obviously made us protract it all. I need to go here. Yeah. Um. So uh, it was good fun, though. Uh, it turned out 
better than I thought it might. Mm-hmm. I think the Goldilocks zone was the second episode because so. <laughs> it, was a bit, it was a bit of booze. Plus, I was in my comfort zone of being a dick about bands. Yeah. <laughs> it comes really natural, to be honest. Well, I mean, in a moment of self-reflection that I'm going to have, I thought it was surprisingly positive on the whole. Mm-hmm. But it was a bit, you know, wanky, of course. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be saying that if you were in Slayford mods, though. <laughs> I know, you wouldn't. <laughs> but I thought that was positive. I thought that was positive. A positive Why, critique. fucking podcast. Think you're big. Yeah, think you're big. Yeah. Oh, silly buggers. Mundin here we are. Fucking can of Carlsberg export and we'll see who the bigger boy is. Andrew Robert Lindsay fell. <laughs> siphoning fucking Prosecco into his skull cans. <laughs> see, we don't even fucking, we don't even buy booze. We just fucking suck petrol at the back of cars and that's how we get smashed. Sometimes I suck a paint just for the, the extra buzz. Um, yes. I, it was good fun though to do that. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Um, I hope to get drunk again next year. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, it's so far away. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the odds are if you could get, because I mean, you know like Paddy Power will give you odds and anything. I wonder mm-hmm. what the odds are on Unsung getting to episode 104. Someday. I mean, David's not here this week and we yeah. can we can tell the audience it's because of kind of ongoing family health issues, mm-hmm. but they know the truth. He's in, he's in rehab. <laughs> he's, he's Actually, been. the truth is that he's just scunnered. <laughs> enough. He's had enough is. I don't blame him. But yeah, so we're starting off 2019 as a duo. Uh, David mm-hmm. is on family duty. Best wishes to him. Yeah, well, um, hopefully that clears itself up sooner rather than later. Yeah, okay. but we're, we're going to uh, press ahead with... Uh, the mm-hmm. planned programme which we yeah. hadn't actually told uh, the public mm-hmm. what it was uh, Mark do you want to do the big reveal so we've picked uh, Black Messiah by D'Angelo and the Vanguard let your day slip away come with me That's uh, the naked guy naked for all you ladies. Yeah. <laughs> he was known as a naked man. guy for such a long time. I didn't know this. Obviously, it was like way before my time. Pretty, but put, pretty put out about it. Yeah. I'm not known as a naked guy. Yeah. I'd take that. I mean, apparently, I did read it in one of the things he spent a lot of time smoking weed and lifting weights. So. <laughs> I can believe that. It looked like he did too. Yes. So, there's going to be a wee bit of rustling during this because I've had to write my notes on sheets of A4 paper uh, to my right. Because neither Mark nor David took advantage of the Christmas period to buy me a new notebook. Hey, listen, right, Chris, Chris, like I said in the Christmas episode, Chris bought me and David presents. Now, my friends and I, we never exchanged gifts, so it was a completely new concept. I mean, the only people I buy gifts for is like my fucking family. Mark said so, that. Sorry, as Christopher. We're, as we were setting up the microphones, you are the first friend that's ever bought me a gift. Actually, true. <laughs> my response was. Kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible, man. But I mean, if you don't, I don't know. I don't know. That seems like a, something that I've just never really thought about doing. So, oh well, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. Do you have a Samaritans in Speeddale? No comment. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite grim, though. Eh? Yeah, yeah. That's what it is, man. Where'd you get all your chocolate from? Oh, I'm gives me it. My sister buys me it. Fucking love chocolate, man. The best thing. Imagine how much chocolate you'd get if you had pals. True. That's a good point. It'd <laughs> be amazing Instead of donations this week Just send me chocolate No don't do that Because I don't give a shit about Well I like chocolate Everyone likes chocolate I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to lie But I, I've got my it. limit 
Oh, Dave could eat it if he wanted. <laughs> like he can. He's not physically incapable. He's the one that came up with that. By the way, that's going to play a part later in this episode, and I'm disappointed that David's not here to help us address it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's. Th- I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that. Did a wee bit of research into some chat that we'd had. So we're going to go ahead with this album. It's the first time in a while that we've done an album and not given you warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also, because David's not here, we're going to do that next week as well because uh, we're not we, don't know, to, we don't know what, next <laughs> week. Don't know what the album is next week. So we'll hold off till we know the, the sketch and we'll see whether we're going to do an album or do a wee uh, investigative episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Black Messiah by D'Angelo and the Vanguard. Vanguard yeah. So uh, D'Angelo's third records. Uh, Mr. Michael Eugene Archer. His third record in 19 years. Yeah, man. Um, dude works slow. I'm <laughs> uh, <laughs> not going to lie. Uh, because there was, there was a lot of weed. There was a lot of weed. <laughs> there was a fair gap between his first two records, right? Brown Sugar and Blue Food. It was five years, right? Which, I mean, for certain kinds of like kind of soul and R&B singers, that's not, that's not completely unheard of. Having that amount of time between records. And the age where pop is so disposable and stuff, it's... Seen as a lifetime, right? So to have further to be between well, fourteen years between the second and third one is like that's like a whole lifetime in, in musical terms. How how prolific was Prince? Because Prince obviously played a big part in his in yeah. D'Angelo's career and inspiration. How how prolific was he? So, but but when Prince passed away, he had released thirty six albums uh-huh. since nineteen seventy nine in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, he's peak how, how often it was like more than one a year one yeah a year? There was, I mean there was years lots of years in the 90s when I was releasing two sometimes three records a year yeah. you know and then there was a period uh, between 2010 and 2014 2015 when he didn't release anything and then he just suddenly came back with a double disc and then another double disc the following year uh-huh. um, I've got a vague drunken recollection of us touching on something to do with the gold experience yeah the gold experience was uh, it was like I said in, in, the, in the last episode Chris, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't remember um, basically that was the second record they released under the unpronounceable symbol the love symbol oh the unpronounceable symbol yeah because when I was editing that episode it sounded like you said the unprincipled symbol yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry I was a bit drunk as well Chris you know it's it's interesting because a few people said oh you guys didn't actually sound that drunk and I think that's a testament to my editing skills yeah I think so I can turn <laughs> I can turn a slurred word into a sharp edged <laughs> consonant you know it's like yeah. yeah I managed that a couple of times I did have to chop a few noises here yeah. And there. yeah anyway sorry uh, so after he released uh, the Gold Experience, he wanted well, to release the Gold Experience at the same time as the record beforehand, which was called the Love Symbol album. And then he wanted to release another one after that, and Warner Brothers said no. Uh, so he released a three disc set when he finally finished his Warner Brothers contract called Emancipation. And then he released a uh, compilation, unreleased recordings called Crystal Ball, which is also like three discs. Um, it's a lot of stuff, man. It's a lot of stuff. Man. It's like the, that's the opposite end of the spectrum from D'Angelo. Absolutely, and it's very clear that D'Angelo is like Prince is like his guy, right? It's like it was yeah. his main influence. Clearly, yeah. yeah. I mean, at times some of that earlier stuff, uh, Black Sugar, that mm-hmm. kind of era, it sounds a little bit like a pastiche of Prince. Yeah, and a lot of the times it does sound as though at, at that time he was trying to be the R&B prince, you know, the, the 90s prince. That's that's pretty much what he was in the early 90s. He, as he, he'd become the R&B superstar, you know, Diamonds and Pearls and the most beautiful girl in the world, not in the room, in the world. <laughs> uh, Those big meandering falsetto yeah. kind of like, you know. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. just forever. Like doing that. Totally, yeah. Um, he really fills his boots with those guys. Absolutely. And then the second record, um, Voodoo, is a much more dense record. It's a much, it, like, that was a big commercial hit. Though. So the mm. first Brown Sugar ended up selling 2 million units, as I understand it. Yeah. There, thereabouts, which... To be fair though, in the mid-90s wasn't a massive amount of records to sell. It's good, but yeah. not massive. Let me tell you about this girl. Maybe I should. I met her in Philly and her name was Brown Sugar. See, we be making love constantly. That's why my eyes are a shade. Blood burning. The way that we kiss is unlike it. Whereas Voodoo went straight in at number one. Why is why? Tell me fry. Watch your soul. And it was off and at the time it started as, as obviously out of two records it started as best work. I mean, for me it's just far too long. You know, it's seventy eight minutes long, it's like an hour it's like an hour and nineteen minutes. It's a whole heap of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good stuff on it. And there's a lot of stuff on it which kinda foreshadows this as well the one that really sticks in my mind on that record is um, Chicken Grease <laughs> which is it's got that um, that kind of choppy falsetto vocal uses a lot in Black Messiah it's the first time that comes into his music really Another thing I, or one of the main things I like about that record is the fact that it all seems, it all blends together. It's sequenced really fucking well. Voodoo. It all, it all sounds like one continuous bit of music. I don't know if that was deliberate, but just the way it's sequenced, it, it sounds like it's just unfolding in a really interesting way. So you can hear in that album, there's a big commercial push though, and it clearly worked, but I think you can definitely hear the fruits of his early modest success combined with the record label seeing him as potentially big because of his looks because he's talent as well a really mm. talented multi-instrumentalist and producer yeah. he'd done a lot of appearances and work with other singers he was coming up with like was it Erica Badu and mm. Lauren Hill yeah Maxwell uh, Maxwell mm. uh, so you can sort of tell that they're like they're putting a lot of energy behind this guy and five years is quite a long time so there's time for that to really gestate and become a solid product you're you're still like wow yeah well done but i think there's something quite I don't know. It's it's a little bit hard for me to take that album overly seriously. Yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of like some weird. Uh, it, veer, it veers away from some of the more inverted commas respected singers like Stevie Wonder and Prince and Marvin Gaye, mm. Sly Stone, things like that. It, it kind of gets a little bit more towards some of the. Boys to Men. Yeah, the factory farms, like yeah, R&B stuff that, that was super popular. That exactly, thing. it's big money and I think yeah. that it sort of gets, it, it strays pretty close to that and I find it kind of hard to really take it very seriously yeah. as a result. And I mean, the first single was Devil's Pie, which does sound like that. Devil's Pie. Yeah. Watch your back, Watch your back. so I, in these days of time. I'll, I'll fuck the slides, 
he's got a really he's not really good at song titles is he let's, let's be honest I don't know man in some people's perspective Devil's Pie is a great song title the Descendants would probably love that yeah probably <laughs> but there's also a Left and Right which is a song which has got a song obviously very clearly about sex but it's also got Method Man and Redner on it you know mm. which again if, and it's got Q-Tip doing a vocal like vocal like basically beatboxing you know if you're going to be going for a hit in the late 90s early 2000s getting Method Man and Redman on it and doing like an R&B song about fucking is, is gonna it's gonna sell I mean it's gonna, <laughs> yes. it's gonna be a commercial success it's definitely a, it's definitely a safe bet I th- th- this album the video for uh, what's it called Untitled How Does It Feel Yeah, the one that got him known as the naked guy because he was naked in it super yeah. ripped and oiled and uh-huh. shirtless and by all accounts almost pantless you can't really tell he just gets yeah. into his but one of my friends calls cum gutters <laughs> <laughs> apparently I, did, I, read, I read an interview he did record some of that video completely naked I can believe that yeah, just um, like such a does cum gutters make sense because I think I mean, we need to explain that for some of our so it, if you're People. uh lying on your back and you're a man a man to <laughs> your pleasure in yourself and your you your objective is achieved and you have those weird hip muscle abductors. You've been to the gym a few times, shall we say? I've I've, flexors, I've, seen, these are, I've seen these unreal younger men. Uh, <laughs> it seems like they may channel away some of that messy semen onto the bed sheets rather yeah. than leaving it collecting in your abdomen. Yeah, and where uh, it can only harden and crust. <laughs> and D'Angelo, I'm pretty sure had no issues with that. <laughs> oh man, I, from the way D'Angelo looks, I don't imagine he had to do a lot of masturbation. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, um, but, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> excuse me. Then things took a kind of so a, wait a minute, dark turn. That, that video won a Grammy. Yeah. He, he's, the fucking Grammys love him. Um, this Voodoo was critically acclaimed at the arse, right? And yeah, Voodoo won a uh, Grammy as well for best album. Yeah, and like it just had so much, like it's in so many end of year lists. There's a section of Wikipedia which is just the end of year lists, and it's just album of the year, 150 greatest albums of the decade. Q album of the year 2000, Mojo album of the year number 26, Times album of the year, Spins fourth album of the year. That record is like the thing. I think when you think about it in the way his career kind of went afterwards, so you could you can completely understand why it would take fourteen years to a follow up, right? Uh, I, no, I don't know if I think you can completely understand it. I think there's probably a, a little bit of his personal stuff in there because I know there was a lot of stuff about he became alcoholic, mm-hmm. and there's also an incredible amount of success for a young guy. But was he born seventy four? Yeah, he's only forty four. So. so he was born seventy four. So he'd be like 26, 25, 26 when that happened. That's that's of a head fuck mm-hmm. as well and there's a lot made of like oh you know he was really unhappy with his status as a sex symbol and it's like well, probably didn't do him too much harm mm-hmm. but yeah okay maybe he was like oh I want to be respected as a musician I think Prince was pretty comfortable as both yeah <laughs> he's very much a sex symbol mm-hmm. and a musician I don't know if one has to necessarily 
be to the exclusion of the other. So I'm not, I don't know, I kind of take that with a little bit of a pinch of salt. It seems like the kind of thing that a record label or management would release or announce and use to deflect from the fact that creatively he was struggling to follow it mm. or maybe the label weren't happy with what he was bringing forward certainly this albeit 14 years later is very very big departure mm-hmm. from that um, I think the manager had made a comment and his old manager Alan Leeds yes I think his manager had made a comment during the spin interview specifically saying yeah he was just sick of being known as the naked dude mm. it's like yeah okay maybe but you know 14 years and with all the support I mean with all that plaudits mm. and the amount of interest in him as a musician uh, there was still a big market for records in 2000 the pressure for a follow up and the incentives for a follow up would have been huge so mm. I'm surprised he didn't I, I don't know if I buy that it was just purely a troubled genius retreating into the shadows thing it seems like probably things went off the rails with all the success well, years later he was in a car crash wasn't he yes and I mean he got arrested a couple of mm. times as well within five years of the record he'd been he'd been arrested he lost contact with his family friends of his had died he'd, like you said he spiralled more into alcoholism and, and had some drug issues and stuff as well which is probably you're right it's probably a consequence of, of, of the success um, I do tend to agree I think that you know the kind of shunning of a sex symbol status is probably like mythologising them yeah. to some degree it just has but, that sniff of BS that managers come out with rather than admit oh, my artist got into contractual arguments and then couldn't follow up yeah. you know, you're not going to say that are you it doesn't look good in Wikipedia whereas if you make him look like a troubled hunk <laughs> it's kind of like yeah that plays better I mean but that's not to say there couldn't be some truth to it no, I mean, of course I think clearly he at that stage in his career particularly he was probably more I think the best way of putting it like it seems to be like the way that this record came about the way Black Messiah came about is like he seemed to want to have more creative control than he could possibly actually you know physically achieve because some accounts say that he, he went away and what when he when it came for the next record he wanted to play every instrument on it, mm-hmm. which um, he obviously he grew, grew up as a piano player, you know, and he's a, a fairly good guitar player. We can say pianist, yeah, pianist. I know if, it sounds like. rude, but we're talking about comfortable already. We've said rude things already. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think it could also be like just don't not having the ability to fulfil that. Maybe, yeah. I I saw a a few things that he'd said about how obviously he was so inspired by Prince and clearly it seems like what he was going for, he actually mentions it, is looking at sleeve notes and seeing Prince, 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 Prince and all the instruments and the production, the writing. He was just like, that was my ambition, was just to be this phenomenon. Mm. And it's maybe partly because he couldn't do it on everything. Yeah, maybe that's some of it. But I think also... We've spoken about it before, Prince's manager, we've quoted him as saying there will never be another Prince, even from the 80s onwards. Because, for example, the success he attained on that second album happened in a different... A totally different era, different... Like, the, the, the commercial concerns of that were just were completely different, right? Yeah, and, and the thing is, it wasn't particularly similar to the way Prince did it because Prince was allowed to experiment for, you know, three albums mm-hmm. and given millions and millions in terms of backing because of his talent. D'Angelo probably got there and thought, oh, cool, this is my Prince moment where I get to just write and compose and be creative and it's like nah nah mate that was 15-20 years ago this is totally different now mm. like money is tighter now so I'm afraid you have to still do what we tell you you are not Prince this isn't 1980 or 79 mm. or 83 or whenever that point was passed by Prince it's this is a totally different environment mm. and a totally different era and that's probably kind of disillusioning so there's probably a lot of conflict from his perspective of 
oh, I thought this would be when I got to call the shots. And they're like, no, 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 we write the checks, we call the shots. Yeah. Um, and maybe looking around as well, he saw some other artists around him that he'd kind of come up with that he felt were getting a bit more control and it had a had a slightly bigger role in mm. their own careers. I'm not sure. It's like I'm kind of reading between the lines for a yeah. lot of this. I think because so. I, think I don't really, yeah. I, yeah, I don't really like to take too much of that superficial shit that they feed you on the, the kind of press release version mm. of it. There's enough evidence to suggest that some of these ideas are maybe a little bit closer. But then I just honestly, I just think as well, the spiral of success, like that must really fuck with you. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, this record is, is, in a, is in so many lists and it, it, it's sold so many, not probably not as many copies as some of his contemporaries, like, you know, like Lauren Hill. Um, but I think you're probably right. I think their deals are probably, stru- their record deals are probably structured in a much different way to the naked guy, you know, who is a really nice looking guy who's going to sell records, is capable of writing a good tune. You know, works with great producers, works with great artists, and the label are going to go. Well, we employed you to do one thing, so how about you just do that one thing? Well, there's um, an elephant in the room, a big dirty bastard, an elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. In the sense, I think one person he probably looked at quite a bit was R. Kelly, mm-hmm. in terms of the control he had mm-hmm. over more than just his career. Yeah, um, which takes me to my nexus. Oh, you've got R. Kelly in your nexus, is that it? <laughs> okay, well, a bit of Fritz. Yeah, let's play a bit of Fritz for the first time in 2019. Yes! It's the Unsung Podcast. Dave Glomexus need to find a way to connect the show to that guy. For playing in Nirvana, to hanging with Obama. He knows lots of folk, so stands to reason we'll find a way. It's the Unsung That's what he's doing. Now, I understand you have two. Do you want to sandwich these? How do you want to work this? Uh, well, I've actually, I've actually turns out that I've got three. Oh my god, Mark! <laughs> um, it's like it's like waiting for a bus. I know, and then they'll come along. Yeah. Um, so wait a minute, are you you doing all three first? No, I, I'll do I'll do my favourite one, and then if you want to do finish in a high, first. man. Okay, okay. Well, the first one would be that his collaborator on Voodoo and on. And the van in the vanguard is Pino Palladino, who is a bass player that is from Cardiff, oddly enough, and is played with the Who amongst many other artists. He also played on Hesitation Marks by Nine Inch Nails, and Dave Grohl has played on for Nine Inch Nails. So that'd be that's a very obscure one. Yeah, it's it's weird, and there's another even more obscure one, which is my favourite one, um, which which we can come to. All right, my turn then, I guess. Uh, okay, so technically, D'Angelo first started in this like pop group called IDU. Mm-hmm. And around about that time, around about 1994, his first success was contributing, being a writer and a co-producer on a song called You Will Know. And You Will Know uh, appeared on the soundtrack to a film called Jason's Lyric. Uh, Jason's Lyric was a sort of, as Wikipedia describes it, 
erotic romantic drama <laughs> set in, uh, I think it was Harlem, and to do with young coloured folks coming of age and struggling to deal with sex and life and it sounds fucking rotten. Um, <laughs> it looks fucking rotten as well. And it features Jada Pinkett, who went on to become Jada Pinkett Smith. The song, you will know, was performed in the soundtrack to that by a supergroup called BMU, who we didn't mention as supergroups. But BMU means Black Men United. Mm. Which sounds like a fucking brilliant football team. <laughs> and uh, Black Men United features a whole host of folks that we'll recognise, especially from our childhoods, D'Angelo, obviously. Boys to Men, Usher. Boys to Men, Usher, Lenny Kravitz, Aaron Hall, and Mr. R. Kelly. <laughs> there is a series about to screen called Surviving R. Kelly. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, a six-part uh, series on Lifetime, uh, which is to do with R. Kelly's catalogue of sexual transgressions and his general status as a real motherfucker <laughs> of the highest order. Oh, yeah. Choking, spitting on, pissing on girls in their early teens. Currently, I believe, as a result of BuzzFeed, alleged to have a sex cult mm-hmm. on the go. It's uh, all the rage now. Uh, it's a pioneer. He also uh, was introduced to a young singer named Alia at the age of 12. She was 12, he wasn't. Mm. He was considerably older uh, by her uncle, and at the age of 14, recorded a song with Aaliyah, who he'd already observed was an attractive young lady uh, called Age Ain't Nothing But A Number, penned by Mr. Kelly himself. And conveniently enough, the following year, when Aaliyah was 15, he married her. Three years short of the legal age of consent uh, where they were living. And I believe it was his, maybe his assistant is suspected of having forged her age on the documents. But anyway, so... Legal marriage to an underage girl, uh, Aaliyah, who died years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it a plane crash? Yeah. Is that right? 2001, I believe. Um, yep, yeah, I think so. Uh, curious little detail, by the way. Aaliyah, uh, when she was getting interviewed about musical inspirations, cited, you know, Stevie Wonder, Prince, mm-hmm. but said amongst some of her top inspirations were Nine Inch Nails and Corn. Wow. There you go, eh? Fucking hell. That caught me off guard. So Aaliyah, aside from being a musician, acted uh, and she was in the film Romeo Must Die, which you may know, but she was also in the film Queen of the Damned. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, eh? A really crappy vampire mm-hmm. movie. No offence. Based on an Anne Rice book of the same name. Yep. Uh, featuring the actor Stuart Townsend, uh, who is Irish, I believe, and he played Lestat, mm-hmm. the vampire in that film. Uh, he'd also been in stuff like Shooting Fish. And weirdly enough, Stuart Townsend, right up until the day before filming, was cast as the original Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. Fuck off, really? Absolutely. He was fired. And when you see him getting interviewed about why he was fired, he's understandably not particularly amused about (laughs) it. Um, But the role of Aragorn was then obviously taken by Viggo Mortensen. Viggo Mortensen, aside from being a conceptual artist and an actor and an interesting guy who backed Jill Stein once Bernie Sanders didn't get the nomination for the Democrats. Sorry, Viggo. That was a fucking bad move Mm. because she's a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Anti-vaxxer. But yeah, yeah, so he has a number of interesting uh, strings to his bow. Uh, One of them is that he's recorded some avant-garde albums, uh, like spoken word artsy stuff with a guy called Travis Dickerson. She must hide till she's old. The friction that takes away a little bit of sound each time a record is played. Travis Dickerson has also worked with people like... Your man Buckethead, mm. uh, L7, who we've spoken about before, and a fella called Vince DeCola. Vince DeCola ring any bells? No. 
oh my god the weird thing is immediately I saw the name I was like oh yeah I know that one I shouldn't know who Vince DiCola is. <laughs> Vince DiCola composed a lot of the score for the soundtrack to the original animated Transformers movie in 1987, <laughs> <laughs> including such classics as Death of Optimus Prime. Weirdly, as a part of an exodus that I could have done, um, I have a feeling that the song My Hero by Foo Fighters was in the reboot, Transformers reboot. I think it was, yeah. Yeah, that could have been my angle. But I didn't go that angle because also on the OST to the animated Transformers 1987, a really, really good film, by the way, mm-hmm. which features... That's some, a good film, yeah. Oh, some cracking tunes. Song you on got it. to touch. Yeah, you got that, you got <laughs> Dare, you got that, that band Lion. Anyway, brilliant. 80s, amazing, that's what it was all about. That features Weird Al Yankovic doing a song called Dare to be Stupid, which I kind of remember from a sequence in the film. And Weird Al Al Yankovic also semi-famously released a single called Smells Like Nirvana. Which was a spoof of the band that Dave Grohl was a drummer in. I think Weird Al has actually performed with Dave Grohl. I wouldn't be surprised now. Mm. Yeah. Now my my, my, pre, my premier nexus, premier nexus, uh, the trumpet on Black Messiah was played by a gentleman called Roy Hargrove, who sadly passed away uh, in November after a 14-year battle with liver disease. Apparently, spent the last 14 years on dialysis. Um, 14 years. Mm-hmm. Roy Hargrove was a sideman on a lot of records throughout his entire career. He featured on Voodoo and on this record, much like Peanut, much like Paladino, Pino Paladino. Um, so you said much like Peanut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to love this. His final appearance looks like it's going to be on the 1975's latest album, A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships. Brilliant. Wow. Okay. Which is, that is probably why he just gave up and died. Yeah. <laughs> The strings on that record were arranged by one Mr. David Campbell. Do you know who David Campbell is? Uh, I know a guy called David Campbell, but it's probably not him. David Campbell is not only a 40-year veteran of the Scientologist church. No, it's definitely not him. He's also the father of Beck. Ah, uh, yeah. And he has worked okay. on a lot of fucking records, like yeah. everything from BB King to Aerosmith. He also worked on his son's head. Yeah, worked on everybody's head, I think. <laughs> the Bangles, Linkin Park, Hooperstank, Tap Group, L- L- Ricky Martin, Hanson. He's done a lot of stuff, man. <laughs> All my favourites. Uh, but he also did the string arrangements on an album called Red Letter Days by a band called The Wallflowers. Oh, wow. Well, that's yeah. a classic. the band also that band features Rami Jaffe who is now the keyboard player in the Foo Fighters full time I did not know that the keyboard player from the Wallflowers was now in the Foo Fighters but given how tragically beige the Wallflowers were it says a lot about the Foo Fighters now (laughs) and Dave Grohl's in the Foo Fighters obviously so he is is. and side nexus Roy Hartwell or the Foo Fighters are in Dave Grohl oh well I think that's uh, semantics isn't it 
But as I said, uh, just as a side note, Roy Hargrove also appeared on the 2010 posthumous album by Michael Jackson called Michael. And on that song, there are, on that record, there is a song by Michael Jackson and Lenny Kravitz, the name of which escapes me right now. But Dave Grohl is listed on the record as having played drums on it. And when Dave Grohl found out, he was raging because he's like, I did not play drums on that song. <laughs> <laughs> That's really weird, eh? Yeah. Dave Grohl can be raging for not playing drums on something. I was playing a lot of Michael Jackson collaborations at a party at New Year, actually. It was a good 15 minutes of fun. A good 15 minutes? <laughs> yeah, he just like the... the uh, stuff with Paul McCartney obviously but then a lot of people didn't know he'd done a collaboration with Eddie Murphy as well yes he also did one with Slash two with Slash oh, there you go everyone a bona fide classic mm. I'm sure right let's play a bit of Fritz and get Ooh. back to the well, next is time sorry you couldn't be there for that Dave so I've got like a weird grenade to toss into the conversation at this point, right? So I'm listening to this album mm-hmm. and I'm like, all right, okay, cool, cool. How do, how do you feel about the band Creed? I don't feel very fondly of them. What is it about the band Creed that you don't like? Um, the sound is pure beige. Mm-hmm. That's mostly it. And Scott Stapp's vocal isn't brilliant, but I'll take the beige sound over this vocal, I think. It, how do you feel about the band P.O.D.? Much the same. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about like we spoke a wee bit about like early Haley Williams and Evanescence and stuff. How do you feel about Christian rock? Christian rock in general. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm mostly ambivalent to its general existence. Ambivalent. To, yeah. Like, how do you feel about the notion of Christian rock? I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's all a widely derided genre for yeah. its preposterousness I think Christian rock as a genre itself is weird because there's a lot of Christian artists out there whose music that I enjoy who would never be in that category you know what I mean like Prince well this is obviously that's kind of what I'm edging towards but what I'm getting at is if you're white and you play guitar Mm -hmm. there is a level of ridicule that goes along with playing your stupid ass pop grunge Mm -hmm. and singing about Jesus Mm -hmm. And there's a level of like uh, being put in a box, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, being derided somewhat. Mm-hmm. I have I had a really interesting conversation with myself um, <laughs> when I was listening to this album because, because of prayer. Yeah, because of that, but also just more generally, like there's a really there's a lot of gospel on this record. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky, it's a tricky, it's a tricky subject, right? So. All cultures have like a religious history, really, ultimately. Like, like Western history of, you know, exporting their stupid-ass fucking nasty mm. beliefs to different parts of the world, especially at the edge of a sword, yeah. are, are, are well-known. So what, what I'm getting at is, like, it is an interesting double standard. Uh, the black that Christian music is a lot more acceptable. Well, not even more acceptable. It's just so completely, like, it's completely... A given, mm-hmm. and I think that I was it was kind of reflecting this from a, one of your heroes, I'm sure, uh, George Bush, oh, yeah. George W. Bush. It's yeah, quote about um, the the soft racism of low expectation. Why do we somewhat ridicule a white rock musician because he's dumb enough to believe in Christianity and Jesus? But when any number of black musicians sing about Jesus, we're like, yeah, that's why. That's that's just what they do. They don't know any better. I think that's interesting because I think. 
we come out from a secular point of view, Christian rock is still huge. And it's, it's a whole subcategory of music. Yeah, but it's ridiculed widely. I mean, Christian rock yeah. is like, I mean, it's not difficult to look up a documentary that is just spoofing on, course, on, yeah. the, on the mm. stupidity of Christian rock. But it would be hard to find a documentary that had the balls to spoof on gospel-influenced mm. R&B. And don't get me wrong, that's where a lot of that music stems from. Mm. But that is still not just, I mean, when you when you dig down though into the, the fundamental beliefs, mm-hmm. why are we so much more accepting that, oh, uh, you know, coloured folks, minority races, they're just, they're, they're religious. They sing about it all the time. It's just what they do. And then as, as you know, the white dominant culture, you're like, but we know better. And so any of us that sing about it, we're kind of stupid. Well, I think, I think you're missing one key thing here and it's, it's that the rock music is traditionally seen as not being religious. Mm, but given its roots, man, is that true? You know, the white people that made it popular. Even Elvis, it was pretty secular, right? When he started, when he was the most famous person. Well, he had a lot of songs about... Yeah, I know, but it was, it was... When it started to transition towards things like, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and when sex started to become a bigger thing and it started to... Then it started to move into, you know, a religious... A religious people, you know, like your ACDCs and your Queens and all that. And then it's a great thing about being Scottish, by the way. You don't say a band's name; you say your your ACDCs, But all those bands, like they, these people, some of these people were Christian, but they never openly yeah, sang about those so- in that way, right? Honestly, d- mm. what proportion of them do you think were uh, devoutly Christian compared to a proportion of black musicians? Do you I think- don't. Th- I think it's probably quite disproportionate in terms of like towards black people are more th- disproportionately religious. Um, but isn't like isn't that interesting though that we have, I mean, I don't think there's, there's definitely mitigating factors in there. And mm. I agree with you, like rock is seen as being slightly more secular. So it does seem more jarring when it's inserted into that format. And R&B is more clearly, its lineage within gospel is more evident. There's also, but, there's also cultural sense in America, isn't there? Like a lot of rock records were burned by evangelical Christians, you know, as being a devil's music. So there's also that part of it. Whereas yeah, so, so is a lot of rap though. Yeah, I mean. An awful lot. I, yeah, but. Rap has only, in the past 20 years, become the dominant form of music in the world, right? Well, yeah, but in the early 80s, man, a lot of that stuff was getting attacked by the PMRC mm. and by Christian evangelicals, by even Reagan-era conservatives in the USA. But it was a big target. Your openly, openly popular black artists were not doing that, you know? Your Michael Jacksons, <laughs> I keep saying yeah. <laughs> your Michael Jacksons, your Tina Turner, I guess Marvin Gaye, Miles Davis, Ray Charles... At whatever end of the spectrum, in yeah, terms but of I would say maybe part are, of, like, but maybe part of that is because the reason they weren't being attacked was because they were much more openly religious, mm-hmm. and so it was much harder to criticise Miles Davis or Marvin Gaye since they were. I, I don't actually know. I can't. I can't really put a finger on it, but I certainly feel comfortable guessing they were probably more overtly religious in the context of their music. Like even up to like guys like Lionel Richie and Luther Vandross and mm-hmm. stuff. You're probably like, there was probably more religious content yeah. in their music, and so it's harder as a right wing evangelical organisation to target them than it is to target the Dead Kennedys or it is to target mm-hmm. any number of like American alternative rock bands in the eighties. I just it really really. I, don't, I personally don't think there's any getting away from the fact, and it's an uncomfortable fact, but I think there is a blatant hypocrisy. We expect black musicians to be much more religious mm-hmm. than we expect white musicians to be. I think white musicians, maybe it's less so in America, but over here, if they're openly religious, there's something kind of off-putting about that. There's something kind of funny about that. I mean, I, any number of musicians that I've found out are 
Christian advocates. I'm just like, oh my God, that including that. like bands like Low and all that. Yeah, but that's that's a for me is like a big reservation about Low. Mm-hmm. I love Low, but that is like that is like a defining factor of Low. It's one of the first things you read in any article about them. But the first thing you read about uh, D'Angelo is not a oh, religious guy, D'Angelo. And I just think it's interesting. I think that whole thing about the the this soft racism or the soft bigotry of low expectations is fascinating because mm-hmm. we don't. We're not even handed in the way we approach that. It would seem culturally insensitive to ridicule a musician if they were singing R&B and soul and it had religious content. And that's really weird. I think that's really weird. I, 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 see, I totally see what you're saying, man. I think the guitar was, was wrestled away very quickly from religion, whereas R&B and soul, which obviously were the progeny, progenitors of hip-hop, like, weren't, if that makes sense. It was all more entwined in the creation of that kind of music. Is it any coincidence, though, that, say, for example, dance music's also... I mean, it's not got a lot of lyrical content, but it's also very irreligious and it's also kind of white dominated. Yeah. So like when you go through the genres, Mm -hmm. other than classical, which a a lot of them are prayers and hymns, Mm -hmm. and it seems like the whiter the genre, the less religious it is. Yeah. Isn't that just weird? I'm not asking for us to solve it. I'm just saying it's weird. It is weird. And uh, the only reservation I have with saying it is like really bizarre is that I spent my entirety of my adult life and most of my teenage years around people who are secular and are white and like music with guitars in it. Are we just saying this because that's a reflection of the culture that we transverse? But I'm saying it, I'm trying to be objective about yeah. it and say it. I, I don't, don't think, I don't think it's possible. Given I don't, like, well, put it this way, what I'm saying is I don't expect black people or Middle Eastern people or anybody of a different ethnic origin than I to have a lower IQ in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So why why is it less hilarious when they believe in something as fucking stupid as religion? I've no idea. Can't answer that. Yeah. I don't think anybody can answer that. Guys, sorry to interrupt, but before we before we um, ask for money. Thank you very much to people that have given us money. It was the season and you gave generously and that was awesome. Chris suspects, however, that people are generous but lazy, so stop being lazy and just... Well, I'm just speaking from experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm generous and lazy. And so it's not yeah. it's not so much parting with money for a podcast. It's more being asked to open up the site and do the payment and get the three numbers off the back of my card or whatever. Yeah. It's more of that shit that puts me off. So go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate to do that. And it's really simple. Please do, if you can, give us some money. It doesn't have to be a massive amount. Some people have. Most people don't donate a huge amount of money, and that's totally cool by us. Um, but anything you can spare is gratefully appreciated. We need chairs, because these ones are squeaky as fuck. So that's the next thing on the list. What do we spend that hosting? Is that 140 bucks? 140 bucks, then. 144 bucks. But if, if, if you're not flush with cash, which you might not be, it is January after all, just uh, get a pal. Just tag him. Tag him on a post. That's all we ask for. Just go busking. Yeah. Go busking and give the money to us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway, so this album... (laughs) (laughs) So, but I think what, like, so clearly what I'm getting at is, right, so... I listened to this record, it's obviously the first time I've heard this record. Well, I say obviously, but you know that this is not a genre mm-hmm. I'm particularly immersed in. 
And my initial reaction, which may surprise you, is this is really, really good. Mm. Really, really interesting, very innovative. Um, I thought his approach to the production in particular is what pulled me in. Uh, I think that was consistent actually with a few different acts that have really jumped out and go with me a wee bit. It was kind of deconstructionalist. So he's, a lot, a lot, yeah. So you take eight different instruments, mm-hmm. but we're not just going to make these eight different instruments seamlessly merge with each other. We're going to make this guitar quite saturated. We're going to make this vocal weird and buried. Mm-hmm. We're going to make this drum kit. We're going to give the snare actually like distortion. We're going to do these weird hand claps and put them really high in the mix mm-hmm. rather than... And so the mixes were like deliberately... It, they were quite self-aware. They mm-hmm. were They were deconstructing themselves and then emphasizing weird aspects of each one and so the mix that emerged was much more idiosyncratic and it reminded me for example of death grips Mm -hmm. to some extent who are taking a form of music and just massively accentuating different aspects of it that makes it quite confrontational and some of the mix some of the production on it was quite and this was quite i say aggressive because music's not aggressive but it certainly has a lot more bite and a lot more uh it has a lot more to say to you Mm -hmm. Um, I think somebody else that does that within quite traditional parameters is Tom Waits. Mm-hmm. And it was a part of his later career where he started taking blues and jazz and oh, like all kinds of like weird kind of like slightly gommy genres, like folky, stupid country, bumpkiny stuff. Mm-hmm. But then writing and recording and then especially producing it in a way that was sort of like totally out of left field. Mm-hmm. And it gave it like a whole new energy. And it's maybe another reason that Tom Waits had this rebirth as such a inspiring and innovative artist. And I yeah, think yeah. there's something in the production of this that really that really captures that for me. Um, so I'd like looking back at how people had reacted to this, it was received incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, that um, Metacritic, it's, the score's sitting at 95. 95, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the, the best Metacritic album of 2014. Uh, Pitchfork is sitting at 9.4, which for Pitchfork is ridiculous mm-hmm. as a score. Um, tiny mixtapes gave it 100 out of 100 and uh, all music it's got 90% mm-hmm. that's like massive plaudits like huge plaudits from especially from the likes of Pitchfork who are not people that you'd necessarily expect to love a D'Angelo album mm-hmm. it, even back in 2014 I know Pitchfork have since gone sort of they've done so many backflips of irony that they no longer really know what is ironic and what's mm-hmm. not especially when it comes to people like Beyonce and stuff like that but it was odd to see them so roundly praise mm-hmm. and champion a neo-soul mm-hmm. artist. Like this weird, smooth R&B kind of soul stuff that's quite jazzy at points. Yeah. And it, it, it seemed a little bit like, I just been cool. I couldn't really work it out. But then when I heard the early part of the album, I was like, no, no, I can really, I can really, really hear this actually. I can see why they've picked up on it. They used phrases like controlled chaos. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, especially with stuff like Ain't That Easy uh, they use things like they, they called A Thousand Deaths uh, a punk hop scorcher again I could see elements of truth in that the problem for me is by the end of this album I thought it was fucking awful <laughs> right and I was really disappointed at that because and I've listened to it multiple times actually I went through his whole back catalogue mm. you know what I'm like um, and by the way uh, easily his best song is uh, She's Always In My Hair the Prince cover <laughs> from the Scream 2 soundtrack yeah I mean that's, that's, that's 
basically a no for no cover though It's jamming though yeah. And the production on it's great Yeah But Some of his old stuff Is so Fucking corny Like yeah. you can tell Like the better moments of his Like I think I, na- I named some of them earlier The better moments Refer to people like Sly Stone Marvin Gaye Prince There's people like There's bits of like The falsetto With Smokey Robinson Al Green Gecko Ron Isley mm-hmm. And you can really hear Those kind of good influences In there I love Smokey Robinson Especially man just drifts into this meandering shit that is like I said earlier on it reminds me of stuff like Boys to Men it reminds me of that really soft 90s soul R&B chart music like the album track as well not even like the single but the album track by Boys to Men this mm. kind of wittering six minute thing yeah. and it, it just is like where is this fucking album going like by the third or fourth song I was like eh okay I'd like a change of pace and then by like seven and eight it's like my god man it's just all of what made it interesting early on drains out of it for me. And th- th- it was a real ordeal getting mm-hmm. to the end uh, from my perspective. And that is, despite the fact that it's had these massive critical plaudits, I'm mindful of the fact that it's, it's obviously connected with a lot of people, people who I maybe wouldn't have expected to love it. And I really got why to begin with. And then I really did not get why by the end of it. Mm-hmm. If, this, if this album had been three, four songs long, <laughs> obviously that would make no sense. But if it yeah. had been... It's consistent throughout that And I'd be like Fuck that was actually Really really cool As it is It goes off a cliff In a big fucking way For me man It really Really bails out And just becomes this Oh my god It's so fucking pointless That's That's, my take That's really interesting I wonder what Dave would say I think I know Dave likes this record Hang on I've uh, thought about a way That we can Imitate David Talking about the record Okay David for Dave that from, from beyond the grave <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean it's, it's definitely top heavy um, the first four tracks are brilliant I think I really like really love as well by the way sorry but um, white guy the, the whitest response possible but track one eh, ain't that easy hmm. Make it with two <laughs> <of Stone Age. laughs> Like I'm not saying he ripped them off Alright I'm not saying that I'm just saying it's similar <laughs> When you're talking about production The whole deconstruction thing Like a, a, a couple of interviews Were saying that he's like really in, He was like really in the Beatles When he was doing this And sliding the family stone But mostly like The production is kind of quite Being into the Beatles Is like being into water But a lot of people used to Compare, compare Prince's earlier stuff To the Beatles And he's like I didn't actually hear the white album Until like the mid 80s Nobody doesn't love the Beatles I don't love the Beatles Everybody loves the Beatles right <laughs> <laughs> In fact I would go so far as to say That Real Love and Free as a Bird Are two of the best Beatles tracks And a lot of the rest of the Beatles stuff Can fuck off Strawberry Fields is good 
But if they've got a ball cut and they're flopping about, they just put that in the fucking bin. Okay, cool. Well, we'll come back to that in an hour day. <laughs> uh, but anyway, this record, Ain't That Easy, I think is a brilliant song. It's really chill, I think. And I both did really relaxed, kind of feeling chorus, which I love. And the groove is awesome. It doesn't really feel like it's five minutes long either. And that totally does hook you. It gets you in straight away because it's got the biggest, not, not the biggest hook on the record, but it's one of the most memorable songs. The clap on thing the record is cool. Yeah. Love the clap. Uh, you like the clap? No? No. Uh, um, a Thousand Deaths, I think, is quite a difficult song to get into. To you know what? A Thousand Deaths is like a, a lounge, easy listening version of POS to me. The production is very loose. It's got that organic drum thing. Mm-hmm. There's a an, or, an unorthodoxy about it that I thought was really quite interesting. And that whole distorted vocal thing is... It sounds like it's coming out of broken speakers, I think. Yeah. Um, which, it's pretty talking load of shite. Yeah. His lyrics aren't aren't the best. One of the things I found really interesting about the, the, the I guess, the, the reviews of this record, the critique of this record, was how, it kept, how a lot of people kept coming back to the idea that this is like a record which reflects the black experience, particularly... You know, after Ferguson. Boring. I don't know if that is what it's like to be. <laughs> <laughs> some of the re- some of the lyrics are quite corny, I think, in places. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I read through as many lyrics as I could stand, mm-hmm. and it was pretty dire. If that's a if that's a reflection, oh, he's that. not known for great lyrics, though. Yeah, yeah brown sugar. But, yeah, voodoo. A lot, of, a lot of voodoo. But I mean, the charade as well was the big one of the, the first big single from the record. I think it's a really cracking song as well um, I like the chorus it's got some good lyrics in it too actually all we wanted was a chance to talk instead we got a in shock which is pretty interesting kind of had the, had the nail right in the head I think at that time got a weird dreamy sitar like thing in it which I thought was really fucking cool and then the fuzz is on the right channel the fuzzy guitar is like on the right channel and it's like a really interesting kind of, kind of play off you love a stereo image yeah I do love a good stereo image why don't we do more of that in this podcast because most of you listen to your Albums in the phone and the way here, so you don't get <laughs> Sugar Daddy. I think it's really good. It's got a total 80s Prince vibe, though. I think it's also got like a weird 1930s sort of kitsch thing going got on. Piano sort of leitmotif that's in it. There's something just very sort of deco about it. I can't, I can't really put my mm. finger on it. I really, really love is the oldest song of the record was written in 2007 by Questlove it does sound a little bit out of place but I think the strings at the start are just fucking unbelievable what, the one that sounded the most out of place to me was Till It's Done just thought it sounded just like a 90s outtake I think it's, it starts off as being really psychedelic then it goes into that pure like 
pseudo seventies like R and B kind of jam thing, which I don't really like to be honest. Um, I had started off with Promise and then didn't, and it, he's totally doing the nineties Prince vocal vibe on vocal on that as well, like completely right out of the R and B Prince playbook. <laughs> it's really hard to take it seriously, yeah. um, and that you know number eight prayer. Ironically, I think it's one of the most interesting tunes. The, yeah. The, the, the trippiness and the production is pretty pretty novel. I was starting to lag a bit mm. here, and I mean, I give it multiple, multiple listens, mm. and I tried dipping in from halfway, because I know it, sometimes it's it's difficult to get to grips with an album um, over such a short time. But, I mean, number nine, though, like any energy that I recouped in track eight, number nine, Betray My Heart, that is Oh, it's so lame. You didn't like it, no. I think that's the best. I think that's got the best hook. The betray my heart thing. I think it's the best hook on the record for me. You don't ever have to feel that my love's not sincere. I will never betray my heart. I will never betray my heart. I will never. Um, but again, it's not a song I keep coming back to. It's usually the first half of the record that that will. I'll really listen to it like the hardest and then the rest I'll kind of, I'll kind of tail off and dip in and out and The Door is like the most conventional song on the record it does have a total 60 country, 60s country very busy vibe to it It kind of works for me sometimes I just need to be in the mood for it to be honest and a lot of the time I'm not I'm like I'm, I'm listening to this record and that's not what I expect to hear next and I'm, and that's not necessarily always a good thing if that makes sense how long is it in total? it's about 56 minutes long I think yeah I was like because it feels it a lot of the songs are definitely too long and then it ends with well Back to Future Part 2 which I think is a much better it's a reprise of the Part 1 and I think it's much better It is shorter, significantly shorter, but it's got a lot more energy about it, got a much cooler kind of feel. It's like the groove's obviously buried in from the first play of the song, but it, it feels a lot more urgent. And then uh, Another Life, sorry. like big R&B ending like exactly what you would expect from an R&B guy it's like <laughs> the last song being this big jazzy kind of harmonised vocal thing which the other thing I love, I love about this record the most actually is the multi-tracked vocals I think that's a really interesting thing that he does and I think his vocal style is, can be really difficult to take sometimes oh, it definitely is I mean I've watched them I watched quite a few videos on playing live because I think mm. with this kind of stuff and given all the talk about him being a great musician I listened to his Live at Jazz Club album and I checked out a whole bunch of his shows, both from his peak and from more recent mm. times. I noticed, by the way, in 2014, he was at GQ. Yeah. He said he was going to be the next Marvin Gaye. Really? Yeah. Oh, um, okay. But his live performances are not as spellbinding as I would have expected. And the falsetto thing, without the production, without the multi-layered vocals, which I do agree work pretty well in some places, uh, they're quite... I find them really quite jarring. Unless yeah. when he hits on, see if he hits on one of these big singles, mm. 
and the crowd starts singing along. It actually works really well because you've got this choir feel. Maybe it's the gospel nature of yeah. it, but that is actually quite cool. But then when you just see him going for it on a stage, it's yeah. like, oh man, like I, I, I'm not sure. I, I can't, I can't echo that, that sentiment of him being this astonishing performer. I really didn't get that to anything like the extent I do. I mean. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I mean, I've never seen him live, but some of the videos I have seen, I, I kind of agree with you on that. Um, I always expect his vocal to be pure stunning, properly, like, yeah, glistening almost. And it's just even with the backing vocals, and he usually has female backing singers, so it does give it a different, much more gospel vibe. But it, it just it just doesn't quite get there for me either. Do you ever get that thing where you're watching a, a band and you've heard these certain attributes being talked up and talked up and talked up, and you're like, maybe that was all just advertising. Mm-hmm. Maybe that wasn't a consensus. Maybe that was just press release after press release after journalists who are trying to hit a deadline, copying a press release, listening to the album a couple of times, going with a vague, basic impression of what they heard. Oh, he's got a good falsetto. Oh, I heard about his falsetto. I read all this stuff online about his falsetto. I heard about him being a great instrumentalist. Maybe actually he's not that amazing. Maybe that's like, I'm shitting on everything he's ever done here. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, maybe he's just good. And all this industry weight behind them that led to that second album doing so well, and then all these years of expectation. Maybe. Nostalgia kicks in and goes, Oh, by the way, this guy's still got it and he's doing something really exactly. interesting. Now. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, again, maybe I think, this is, I think this is something that comes up so often. Maybe it's that Emperor's New Clothes thing. I, I don't know. I've not seen anything yet that has justified that astonishing praise. I think this is a super fucking interesting record, and that's why I love it. Even though there's stuff under that. I, some songs in which I don't don't quite click with me. It's always doing something really eccentric and weird, which you don't expect. It's, it's a total cultural thing again, like you say about you know the religious thing. Like you don't expect that from an artist who's done an R and B record, right? Mm-hmm. Who is like a, I, who is like the naked guy, you know? And he's like suddenly doing this, and it's can, definitely it's definitely taking a chance. But after fourteen years, everyone was going to be a chance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So I don't I don't know. I think also just on a purely in terms of criteria, I think this is really pushing the definition because I mean it, it went in it, it peaked at number five in the US, which is high. We've never yeah. been in the size of that as far as I'm aware. And uh, you know, ninety five out of a hundred on Metacritic, mm. nine point four on Pitchfork, a hundred yeah. on tiny mixtapes. I don't think there's any danger it's unsung. I well, think it's really of, interesting. One of the things that that's one of the things that that I was mentioned before before I picked it, it's like the reason I think it's unsung is because I don't think a lot of people have heard it. No, that's what because I, I think it's weird in that it got every favour going in that mm-hmm. sense. It had massive critical acclaim and it seemed to do initially at least very well, um, but it's drifted off people's radars. Now, I do agree that it's a really interesting album, but has it drifted off those radars organically because so much of that critical acclaim was something something along the lines of hype and it didn't quite live up to that hype, which is the impression I got from these live videos. It's like, this guy's not really living up to all this hype. And... I think time tends to sort those things out and even though it is very interesting and definitely worth hearing, especially if that's your bag, I think the the, the, the indifference, the wider indifference, it could be bad luck, but maybe the wider indifference is more to do with the fact that people have heard so much about this and then been like, oh yes, it's, kind of, it's pretty good, I don't really listen to it anymore. Mm-hmm. And maybe that just happens, maybe that's life sorting it in a way that the advertising couldn't really ultimately fix. When Questlove was talking about this record in an interview in 2011, which is obviously before, way before it came out, he's, he was saying, like, I heard, I've heard the, I'm, I'm on the new D'Angelo record, he's doing some things which I've not really heard people do in a long time, like creating his own, like, keyboard patches and all that kind of thing. And then ended the end, the, the quote that I read ended, like, we'll see if history's kind to it. 
which I think is a really interesting way of yeah, it's probably, it off. Yeah, you know? it's, a, it's an interesting uh, denouement. Mm-hmm. Probably is. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Um, one well, other thing, by the way. I, I, obviously, I don't think this should necessarily go forward, mm-hmm. although I do concede it's a very interesting record. And I think it'd be good if people did listen to it a bit. Uh, and not just the first tune, <laughs> yeah. but did listen to it a bit before they gave it a vote, just to hear the the innovation and in the production. But as I say, it, for me, it just drags and drags and drags and becomes very samey. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting thing. Oh, I can't even remember what episode this goes back to. Right? Do you remember we originally had the uh, is cannibalism vegan? Yeah. Conversation. Uh-huh. So when I was looking through, so Michael Eugene Archer's uh, dad was a Pentecostal minister, mm-hmm. which perhaps explains to some extent, some of the, the religious influences that are bringing to bear. Um, and I was like, oh, Pentecostal. Yeah, they they, they do the Eucharist. So I had a look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Looked at uh, Pentecostal Eucharist is entirely symbolic, mm-hmm. right? So the Pentecostal, Pentecostal Eucharist is just um, a representation of the Last Supper and it's completely, like for them, it's arbitrary. You, you can have it as many times or as few times, it doesn't matter. It's just part of a kind of optional part of services periodically. Um, the Catholic Eucharist... Transubstantiation. ...is dogma. It's Catholic dogma, which mm. means it's from divine revelation and is non-negotiable. And the Catholic Eucharist is based on transubstantiation, uh, whereby the wafer and the wine... Or literally. ...doesn't matter what they were made from. This is the argument yeah. I had so many times over the holidays because obviously I got drunk and had this yeah. argument. Uh, it doesn't matter what they were made from, but... They, they literally, according to Catholic eat doctrine... A bo- eat, the, eat the body of Christ and yeah, drink the blood of Christ. They cease to yeah. be wafer and wine. They mm-hmm. become flesh and blood at yeah. the point of consecration. Mm-hmm. Even though they don't look like it, according to Catholic dogma, they are literally the flesh and blood. And everybody's like, no, 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 it's not that. So some, it's like, no, I know you want it to mm-hmm. be a symbol, but that's one reason why Catholicism, yeah. like so many religions, is so absurd. But then it was like, so... Is communion vegan if you're Catholic mm-hmm. because you're eating flesh and blood? And full. Oh, but uh, it's vegan because Christ gave his body and blood. <laughs> then you're really getting down a rabbit hole. Yeah, totally. And then you're like, so what is veganism? Is veganism to do with choice? So an animal that dies through an act of a violent act that wasn't its choice, that can't be consumed or uh, if it, it has something taken from it without consent. So veganism is about consent. So Jesus gave consent, therefore Jesus' flesh is vegan, therefore a vegan can take Catholic communion. But if Jesus didn't give consent, then you couldn't eat his flesh. What is that? I want to know. I want to I want to keep digging at this because I've not heard this conversation. Maybe I've just got narrow horizons. Yeah. But I want to know more about Catholicism, the Eucharist and veganism. I want more opinions in this. I think veganism, I'm narrowing it down. I think it's about consent. I think that's what it's about. So if you eat a German man's wiener after you found his advert in the back of a paper... You've consented, he's consented. He's consented that. and that's yeah. still vegan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but then I guess uh, the whole question of can animals give consent because they don't have the same level of consciousness well, as humans do. Well, they can't give consent. So yeah. They've no, they've it's no, like, it's the same reason why kids can't give consent until a certain age because they don't have the... Moral capacity to Exactly do so. An animal doesn't have The mechanism I used, I used to air quotes When I said moral capacity just <laughs> if, a, if an animal Takes out an advert In the, the back of Der Spiegel And asks you To come round to its house And eat its wiener mm-hmm. Then I'll give you That's maybe Alright It's an interesting point That as well Because um, One of the reasons Why uh, Abortion is said to be Is said to be Like you know Wrong Is because The, the child can't decide For itself But Consciousness 
doesn't actually take hold properly in a child until about three years old, right? Like fully. Does that mean we can kill kids up until three years old? And does that mean it's okay to eat them until they can decide that that they don't want to be eaten? And, I mean, and we, we, if, could, we could just end the, the episode here or we could try and work that out right wait, now. What do you wait, prefer? But, but one thing just throws a spanner on that works is that well, a lot of a lot of animals shouldn't be killed and eaten because they have a consciousness which is greater than that of a baby. Well, yeah. Let's um, let's continue this another day. I'm sure there's <laughs> there's many many other albums that will lead us. I wish, I wish Dave was here for that. No, I'm glad he's not. But really happy to hear your thoughts on that. Let's get a big angry Facebook thread on the go. Yeah, and if you're still listening next week, then thanks. <laughs> uh, can I just say before we finish that? I sent this to both you and Dave like mere minutes before we recorded, but you can check it out on Facebook, not on YouTube, but if you go on Facebook, Jimmy Fallon, uh, Jimmy Fallon's Facebook, yeah. Yeah. His cover of Sometimes It Snows in April is... No, not Jimmy Fallon's, D'Angelo's. Yeah, D'Angelo. If you go on, yeah, if you go on to Jimmy Fallon's Facebook... <laughs> Jimmy Fallon's Facebook, D'Angelo's cover. cover of Sometimes It Snows in April, which is... I had this discussion in the pub on Saturday night. I don't think I've cried for about four years, and I was watching it before I left the house, and I almost cried. It was fucking beautiful. Good crying or bad crying? Good crying. I don't know. Right, okay. It was well, sad or bad crying. Aside from the Eucharist, abortion <laughs> and consent, we'd like to know if Mark was good crying or bad crying. Yeah, please please tell me that. But go watch that. And you can if you do a good cry or a bad cry, you can also let us know if you Sound. did either of those things. But yeah, I think this goes in. Chris doesn't. That's fine. Dave doesn't have a vote this week, but I'm sure he'll let his voice be he heard prob- at some point. David would probably have said... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Probably exactly like that. Uh, so. No, I need to go and work on my cum gutters. Can we finish this? Yes. Okay. Go vote on our Facebook page, and if you can, please give us a rating and review. That would be awesome. Right, Chris. What are we doing? Next? Oh wait, we don't know. No, we're we're, we're keeping that one under yeah. our hats because we don't know if David will be back. So it could be an expose uh, of the Burmese military. Oh, Myanmar. Sorry. Or it could be just another shitty album that you've never heard of. Yeah. Tune in next week to find out. <laughs>